you've crashed so hard from hugely unprofessional <laughs> to wonderfully eloquent. Just on a... It was on a dime. That was unbelievable. Where have you been? Hello and welcome to the Story Toolkit. I'm Basim El-Wakil, co-author of Action, The Art of Excitement with Robert McKee, and joining me is Luke Lionel, writer and part of the McKee Storylogue team. So today we're going to answer a question sent in by a listener, yes. Bob Woods. Yes. Uh, uh, before I read that out though, as always, if you want to get in touch to ask us a question, uh, then at the Story Toolkit on Twitter... Uh, and then we've got the website, thestorytoolkit.wordpress.com, uh, and you can email us direct from there. Yeah. So the question, the question. Uh, is from Bob Woods, and he wanted us to talk about uh, sequences and using sequences in writing. Uh, and Bob said the normal, <laughs> this is in air quotes as well, yeah. uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> uh, the normal amount would be two sequences in the first act, four for act two, uh, and then two more sequences in act three. That would total 120 minutes, which um, which used to be the target amount. Some teachers call them mini-movies rather than sequences. So Bob says, My problem is understanding the technique used for putting the sequence together. I write scenes as they would occur in my story. I don't think in terms of sequences. So I guess my question is, are sequences necessary or do they just happen in the flow of a story? Um so what's interesting about that phrase are they necessary or do they just happen if they are necessary they do just happen yeah. right by by nature it that's so in in one sense you you don't have to worry about them but in the other sense uh if you don't know what it a sequence is if you don't understand how to do them the, then the problem becomes this if you're writing your story and something's not working and you don't know what sequences are, and the problem is in your sequences, in your sequence structure, how can you possibly solve it? That's why you want to know all these sort of bizarre, esoteric, highly analytical terms, so that when something is wrong, you can identify the problem. Because your ability to solve problems in your writing is only going to be proportionate to the amount you know about writing. Yeah. So if you don't know something, you can't fix those problems. Uh, and so you just don't know. So, uh, so we're going to go through sequences for you. Yeah. Talk so about t- to answer the question in in more detail. Yes. Uh, we're going to look at Die Hard. Yeah, we're going to talk about Die Hard. We're going to talk about the sequences in Die Hard to make it clear what a sequence is, and then hopefully once that's done, we can explain how you can apply that to writing. Yeah. Um, uh, because there is a problem, uh, a formula that you uh, allude to in your email, and so we're going to. Okay, well let's start let's start by addressing that formula. The formula says 242. 242. Two. That's How, nonsense. And sequences so, in Die Hard. So, it, the, the, according to the formula, the story's in three parts, right? Three acts, beginning, yeah. middle and end, which is so nonsense a term, beginning, middle and end. Like what does that mean? How does that help you write anyway? So it's in three parts, and the first part has two sequences, and the next one is four, and then the next one is two. Right. Here's Die Hard. Die Hard first of all is in four acts, not three. And it's got 11 sequences, not eight, right? And the sequences break down like this. Well, act one has one sequence. Act two has two sequences. Act three has how many sequences? Uh, five. Five. And then act four has the last three sequences. So it's one, two, five, three. 
So this and that's is, not common. Like, this that's is the, just how it is. Yeah, this is the problem with formulaic teaching. We're going to get into formulaic teaching yeah. later. So anyway, so Die Hard. That's the breakdown of Die Hard, okay? So there's four acts, 11 sequences. So I'll take you... Th- I mean, I assume you will watch Die Hard, so everyone knows the story of Die Hard, but I'll take you through Spoiler the sequences. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert for Die Hard. Uh, okay, so... Um, so I'll go through the sequences, okay? So the first sequence is Hans takes the plaza. So that sequence is where Hans Gruber uh, gets into the plaza, takes over the plaza, and does this whole... Um, uh, they, they, they shut down the, the place, and uh, uh, McLean goes on the run. And it's also the sequence where we see McLean getting to the plaza, talking to Argyle, worrying about his future with Holly having an argument with Holly, and then Gruber takes the plaza, right? So that's the first sequence. Gruber takes the plaza. So that's that's also in inciting incident first act. It's also it? the inciting incident, and it's the first act climax as sure. well. Um, so it's a major reversal, it's an inciting incident, and the reason it feels like a major reversal and isn't just an inciting incident is because of how drastically it changes the value of life in Holly and McLean's uh, the balance of their life. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's not like, say, um, uh, the fugitive, because the fugitive just opens with him on trial. Yeah. Okay, so it's not, you don't get the sense of how much the balance has been upset. But in Die Hard, because we wait a little while, we wait 20 minutes, I think, something like that, before Gruber takes the hotel. It might be 15, 16, something like that. Yeah. Um, before, So we're waiting to see that when it happens, it has this major reversal. So that's act one. That's also the first sequence. The next sequence is uh, McLean gets the machine gun. You know, ho, ho, ho. I have a machine gun. Takagi gets killed and McLean gets the machine gun. So now he's got the machine gun and he's able to sort of do guerrilla tactics on the terrorist. He's killed the terrorist after all. Then the next sequence is the sequence where McLean throws a terrorist through the window onto Powell's police car. And so the police get involved. You know, welcome to the party, pal. That that fantastic sequence. So that's the next sequence. So uh, I'm then, glad that this has given you the opportunity to to bust out your McLean and your Gruber impression. Uh, my my McLean is just generic American. My Gruber. Your Gruber is. is uh, it's all about Gruber. Superb. Okay. So the next sequence um, is uh, Gruber versus the police. The police storm the plaza. And Gruber uh, blows them up with a bazooka, so McLean has to come into the story again to save the police from Gruber. The next sequence is the Ellis sequence, where uh, where Ellis, Hans, Bubby, right? And he tries to negotiate with Hans Gruber, and um, of course he gets killed. Um, then the next sequence is uh, great. It ends with... Um, it's the sequence where Hans is trying to get the detonators, trying to work out what's going on. And he bumps into McLean. And he goes, oh, you're one of them. You're one of them. And he pretends to be Bill Clay. Right? He, t- he pretends to be a um, a hostage. And then uh, the next sequence after that is uh, McLean works out he's Gruber. They have a shootout. Um, and Gruber shoots the glass. So McLean is barefoot across the glass. And Gruber gets the detonators from McLean. Then... You have the sequence after that. The FBI opens the vault for Gruber. You want miracles, Theo? I give you the FBI. Da, 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 da. That brilliant sequence. I love that sequence. And then um, the next sequence after that, Gruber discovers that Holly is um, uh, McLean's wife, and so he kidnaps her. 
Then the next sequence after that, Gruber blows the roof and McLean saves the hostages from the roof and he jumps off the roof. And then the last sequence, of course, is the climax. You know, you'd have made a good cowboy, Hans. Oh, yes. What was it you said to me? Yippee-ki-yay. Motherfucker. <laughs> right? That, 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 of course, we all know the great ending. So that's, so I'm going to go through that again. There are 11 sequences. Hans takes the plaza. McLean takes uh, the machine gun. The police get involved. Gruber versus the police. Ellis. Hans tricks McLean. Gruber gets the detonators. The FBI opens the vault. Gruber kidnaps Holly. Gruber blows the roof. And then the climax. Yippee So Those are the 11 seconds. Before you start panicking, I will post these on the website oh, um, yeah. where, where I put the timestamps um, for, for what we talk about and when in the episode. Uh, I'll I'll put this breakdown as well, and in in a little bit we're going to go into some scenes in detail, and I'll write the the, the names of those scenes as well, just so you can um, that's uh, follow a, that's along. That's a lot of work for you, and I kind of want to be mean. It's we should just typing it, up some sentences. On yeah, it. I know, I but they should do it, it themselves. This is work for you. This is admin. It's what I live for, Basim. Uh, that's true, I guess. Okay, so um, so those are the eleven sequences of Die Hard. Okay, and. Um, so that's now those sequences we pointed out they break down into acts okay so you can see that's what the sequence is right so you can kind of get a, a sense of the size of what a sequence turn is okay because a sequence is a moderate change as, as mckee points out in his book so you have acts that are major sequences are moderate scenes are minor turns and so these are moderate turns so now if you take a look at the acts, you can see how the acts are larger than those 11. Like, remember those 11 sequences I just described? You know, Hans takes the plaza, McLean gets the gun, etc., right? This is what the acts sound like. The acts are Hans takes the plaza. So, same thing. The next act is the police get involved. The next act is the. I'm, gonna, I'm just want to pause you, you on the police get involved. Yes. Is, why is that such a major turn? Why, why is that such a... Why is it such why a it major turn? Yeah. Okay. Uh, when McLean gets the police involved, up until that point, all we know is Gruber has taken the plaza. There's no one to help these hostages. McLean is completely on his own. When he gets the police involved, he now has the LAPD involved. McLean... Once, the, once he gets the police involved, McLean stops being involved in the film. He actually steps back. It's like they don't need me anymore. He just hides and waits it out because the police will solve it. But the police so underestimate Gruber, that, and of course it turns out Gruber needed the police to be involved, that McLean has to come back in. So it's a huge major reversal towards the positive when it happens. Because now McLean, like Gruber, Gruber's just a guy with a couple of dudes, right? That's it. That's all he is. So the police, the whole LAPD now, like it's a huge major shift. It's much bigger than, say, him just getting a machine gun or him calling this or whatever. It's like, no, he got the police involved. So the first act, Hans takes the building. The second act, the police get involved. The third act, the FBI opened the vault for Gruber. So now Gruber's won. Yeah. He's got the detonators. He's got the money. His plan's happened. His plan's worked. He's won. And then the last act, McLean kills Gruber. And saved Holly, so you can see the size of the acts, right? Compared to the sequences. Yeah, I thought it was interesting actually um, when you were talking about the act two turn and yeah. saying compared to a sequence. Yeah. Um, 
just look at Act Two does have two sequences in it. Yes. Um, and if you look at the the two, yeah, big turns, they are just so qualitatively different. Yeah. McLean takes the gun. Yeah. That's a that's a nice upswing for him. Yes. But it's not huge. But then when you when he gets the police involved, yeah, that's a massive turn. For it's him. a much bigger turn than just him getting the gun yeah. or um, anything else, and or uh, Ellis being killed or yeah. It's a much bigger turn. And again, the FBI opening the vault is an enormous turn. And these things, they feel bigger because you could make a story where these are small turns, right? But they are big because of all the scenes it takes to build up to them. Yeah. That is what gives them their weight. So the third act climax is a huge turning point because of all the sequences, including the first two acts, that have to build up to get there. So Act 3 is bigger than Act 2, Act 2 is bigger than Act 1, and then Act 4 is this big, highly intense payoff to the rest of the film. So um, so that's just to give you an indication of the difference between a sequence and an act. Okay, I, and I hope that's clear. Do you want to take this smaller? And then we can go the other direction. Yeah, we can talk about individual scenes in a sequence. Okay. So uh, one of the... Um, do, to 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 do this, uh, we're, we're going to take one of the sequences yeah. that you described, yeah. and we'll go into the scenes involved in that single sequence. Yeah, we'll take the sequence where McLean gets the machine gun. Yeah. So this is the second sequence. Yeah, and it's of got the film, and it's got nine scenes in it. Yeah. Second so, se- second sequence of the film. It's yeah. the first sequence in the second act. <laughs> Yes, this is the way you phrased that. It was just yeah. like, is it, like we're, we're throwing numbers around. It's getting hard. Basically, let's do it. Let's do it this way. So, <laughs> if I wanted to steal third, I'd tip my cap not once, not twice, but twice. twice. Okay, so it works like this. Uh, Hans takes the plaza. Then the next se- sequence is McLean takes the gun. Okay, mm-hmm. those are the first two sequences of the film. Uh, and uh, if I'm right, forty minutes. That takes those two sequences. Sure. So uh, the first 40 minutes of the film is two sequences. Now, Hans takes the plaza. McLean takes the gun. That's small. Okay, so McLean taking the gun is smaller than Hans taking the plaza, than the police getting involved. But it's going to be larger than any of these scenes. So if you, if you see this, you're going to see how these scenes build up. Okay? So there's nine scenes in this sequence of how he gets the gun. So the first thing that happens is McLean runs around the uh, Nakatomi Plaza going, think, think, trying to find a safe place, which he does. He manages to find a safe place. He's still in danger, but he finds a safe room. Okay, so that's the first scene. Okay, he finds an empty floor. The next scene is, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, where Hans does his whole speech and he wants to find Takagi. And he gets Takagi. So the next scene is Hans gets Takagi. McLean finds an empty floor. Hans gets Takagi. Then McLean gets trapped. As Takagi and Gruber and his men are taking Takagi to another room, uh, McLean is running around and he ends up accidentally in the same room as them. Okay, so he's hiding and watching Takagi and McLean uh, sorry, Takagi and Gruber talking, and you know he's got the. I read the article in Forbes, you know that whole bit. Nice suit. I could talk about men's fashion. That whole lovely sequence. McLean's watching it. So, 
Uh, easy on the use of the word sequence there. Did I? Yeah, you said that whole lovely sequence. Oh yeah, that you whole mean that whole lovely scene. That lovely scene. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so we, so we go. He finds. So McLean finds the empty floor. Hans gets Takagi, and then McLean gets trapped with them. Okay. So then, what happens next? There will not be a four. Right. Bam. Gruber kills Takagi. The fantastic scene. He kills Takagi. McLean doesn't help him. He's scared. He's watching. He doesn't know what to do. And he just watches um, Gruber blow Takagi's brains out. So Gruber kills Takagi. However, once this happens, the next scene... Remember this, by the way, this scene is all taking place in the same area. So a scene isn't just uh, a change of of, uh, setting. It's the change in value of the story. You see, McLean finds the empty floor. That's positive. Uh, then uh, Hans gets Takagi. That's negative. Then McLean gets trapped with them. That's even more negative. Then Gruber kills Takagi. That's even more negative. Then then it turns out in this in the same moment here, the next scene, the next turning point, Gruber's killed Takagi, so they can't get into the vault. And then Theo says, "We, I can deal with all these things, but I can't deal with the seventh lock. And uh, Gruber just says, trust me. So now Gruber has a plan. So it's worse again. Then, McLean pulls the fire alarm. Right? Gruber cancels the fire alarm and sends a terrorist after McLean. McLean kills the terrorist. And then, of course, he, uh, uh, so he kills the terrorist. That's how he gets the gun. Theo then cracks the code. For the um, the vault and everything, not all, the whole thing, but he cracks most of the code. And then, what does McLean do? He sends down the dead body with ho ho ho. I have a machine gun on it. Hides in the lift so he can gather intelligence on the guys, so he knows how many of them there are, how many are dead, etc. So the sequence, the nine turning points that happen in this sequence: McLean finds an empty floor. Hans gets Takagi. McLean gets trapped with them. Gruber kills Takagi. Gruber has a plan. McLean pulls the fire alarm. McLean kills the terrorist sent sent after him. Theo cracks the code, and then McLean gathers intelligence on the group. So it goes like that. What you notice, yeah. What you notice listening to that, um, uh, especially when you list them, um, is how is how much it just swings. Yeah. The pendulum swings, positive to negative, just yeah. a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more, yeah. before that final one at the end of the sequence where, uh, yeah. where they find the dead body. Yeah. Big, big upswing for big upswing for McLean because he has all this. He he knows how many of them there are. Yeah, what their names are. He knows everything. So you can see it starts off and he's like he's on his own. He's got nothing. He's trapped with them, and then at the end of it, he's managed to turn the tables. And he's got the gun, right? So McLean has the gun now. So you can see that this whole, all nine of these scenes turn one moderate change to McLean's life, which is it goes from completely on his own with nothing to in possession of a machine gun and all the intelligence he needs about this group. Yeah. So, but it's not as big as getting the police involved. It's not as big as the FBI opening the vault. Yeah. But it's not as small as uh, Gruber killing Takagi. And or just, um, cracking the vault, uh, cracking the codes, or, or whatever. Uh, and just for reference, I'll put those nine scenes as well um, underneath the timestamp on the website. 
Okay. okay, so you'll have the 11 sequences and also the 9 scenes from that one sequence that we've just broken down. So let's turn this back then. So, yeah, that, hopefully that makes the difference between a sequence, a scene, and an act quite clear. Yeah, yeah. So let's turn this back then to the question. How, do you, how on earth do you use that knowledge as you write? Well, uh, you, you throw it up in the air and uh, you just see what sticks. <laughs> Right, that's how it works. Or you stick to a formula. Whatever nonsense. I don't know. What was the question? I've lost your already. Brilliant. <laughs> I'm just replaying Die Hard in my head. Right, so... <laughs> uh, okay, so, so what Mr. Woods said um, in his question was that you had this thing about 242 and everything, and you can see why that's just rubbish. Um, I'm not saying he, he... He obviously has a problem with it. Uh, because he goes yeah, like, he I, I, quotes, yeah, he goes, I don't get it, and everything. It's like, yeah, you're right, you don't get it because it's nonsense. Whenever someone says tries to put numbers on how you should write, that's when you should kind of really go, hold on, this person's prescribing a formula. There's a difference between using quantity to illustrate sort of generic principles, sort of a general element. That's fine. For example, I've said the average for a full length story. Is around twelve sequences. Yeah. Now I would never say you should have twelve sequences. Die Hard has eleven, right? Die Hard doesn't need an extra sequence. Yeah. Other stories will have more. Some will have thirteen, fourteen sequences. It's just it's a kind of rough guide. Like if you're really far out of twelve, there might be a problem. I mean, I'm not, and I'm not even saying there will be. I'm just saying there might be. It might be too slow. It might be it's, too fast. It's definite that there might be a problem, but you only. You only know that by then becoming an audience member and going, yeah, and, or, and kind of trying to sense what the problem is. I, I or just, give having readers and saying, and then sure, going, like, yeah. something's not right. It's too I, fast. Too I rushed. mentioned that because um, uh, I've broken down a lot of comedy TV shows. Yeah. Um, uh, in in time, like writing pilots, and and I remember um, looking at American sitcoms and the average number of scenes. I mean, you've done loads of yeah. Frasier and things like yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, um, the average number of scenes in an American sitcom being something like 17 or 18. Yeah. And then I broke down an episode of 30 Rock. Yeah. And 30 Rock had an enormous amount. It was like 25, 26 yeah. scenes or something. And that's not a problem. But then when you watch an episode of 30 Rock and compare that to an episode of Frasier, you realize how much quicker yeah. everything moves. It's just gag scene, gag yeah. scene. And so it plows through them. And so it's got a very kind of quick... Yeah, uh, feel to it, but th- there are problems with that. But the point I was making is yeah. that if you look at a film, a feature film, and you yeah. think, okay, so twelve is the average number, eleven, twelve, yeah. whatever, and you break down your story and you realise you have seven, yeah, or six, you think, well, maybe it's quite slow, yeah. Or if it, uh, uh, it's, you know, if you're doing minimalism, that's totally fine as well. Well, there you go. Yeah, so it, it, it totally can shift depends. depending yeah. on genre and style things like that will actually change certain styles sure. are faster than others and so on so that's absolutely the case um, it, it, so it's not that it, it has to like this this 242 thing is like as a general so you're, not only is it 242 but it's it's specifically 2 in this bit 4 in this bit 2 in this bit and even if you go well sometimes it's 3 and sometimes it's 5 and sometimes it's 2 or 1 or whatever it's like yeah but you're still breaking it down i'm just yeah. saying how many sequences there are in total even yeah even even saying yeah the first one is shorter the middle one is longer yeah. the next one is shorter look at john carter yeah and yeah that, john and carter that breaks that mold. Yeah. and so with john carter's what five what was it five or six acts 
Yeah. yeah and the first act is... Is an hour and a half long. Exactly. Or and so... So there's not... It's not formulaic in that sense. It's just... All, all we're doing is we're quantifying these things enough to give enough examples that you can kind of see a, a form as opposed to a formula. Yeah. Like what there is. So... This two four two nonsense is just ridiculous. You don't need to think of it that way. It's just something that you can have in the back of your head, which is if you're writing a full length work, you probably a dozen sequences seems about a good pace, you know? Because some sequences will be longer than others and some will be very short. So the Ellis scene, for example, is only a couple of minutes or whatever it is, right? Yeah. So that sometimes they'll be long, sometimes they'll be short, but in it the depends. end they'll balance out and have a nice pace to them. Whereas if it's very few number of sequences, then it's possible that your your story isn't going to be working the way you want it to, and so on. It, so it it's depends. Just to think about. We'll come back to this, but it, it depends what you want to accomplish in or what you need to accomplish yeah. in that sequence. It's it's just even to have just a yardstick to measure it against. Yeah, it's not a yardstick to necessarily ape. It you know it's not a formula to fulfill. It's just something to go like I have less than usual. Yeah. That's okay, or I have more than usual that's okay. I don't mind it having a fastest pace. Like, Ghost Protocol has more sequences. Right? If I remember Off right. the top of your head? I can't remember now. Uh-huh. Just I, more than Die Hard. I think it has more than Die Hard. Uh, Empire Strikes Back has more than Die Hard. Um, the thing is, though... And of course, it... some of these films are longer. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah sure. Like, if they're longer, they're going to have more sequences, right? Lord of the more Rings. More scenes, yeah. etc. Yeah. Would, would a good rule of thumb therefore being um, therefore be that whatever story you're writing whatever genre yeah um, you're writing in to just research that genre yeah absolutely just research it like okay if you're writing a a, a, a two hour f- uh, film and the genre is domestic drama get a bunch of domestic dramas and study them and if you get short stories and long stories that's great as well but that won't help you necessarily with structure and pacing specifically for a full-length work. So then you look at full-length stories and you see how much, how many scenes there are, how many sequences there are, how long a scene usually takes versus how short one is. And you'll notice there's this huge spectrum that's available. So it's not, it just, it can't be prescriptive in that way. It just, you can't, it won't, doesn't work. So um, yeah, I, I would, you know, uh, when when giving these things numbers and stuff to uh, to accurately define them, but it, there's no way. I mean, people have tried to copy the dry hard blueprint. Blueprint. They keep trying, and just doesn't work. If a, if a formula worked, then a computer could write a story. If a formula worked, it would have worked, and we'd have them. <laughs> like that's how it's. Yeah. No, it just doesn't work. It's not how it is. There's so many books that prescribe formulas and all this, and they're all wrong, and then none of them work because just it's just not true. So. It's okay, just, it's not the way it is. So that's that's one problem. So one problem, one problem with the 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 way that this uh, Mr. Woods has been talked uh, told about these things is, it's formulaic and that is very bad. That just doesn't work. The other problem, pardon me. The other problem is, when you say focus on these sequences like mini movies, you can create a disconnect between each sequence. So each sequence becomes individualized and so you have okay i've got this sequence the sequence of the fight here or i've got the sequence of the shootout or the kiss scene or the sex sequence or the argument sequence you have all the and what happens when you disconnect it like that is that you're forgetting that you're running a whole story 
and that the sequence has scenes before it that will set it up and scenes after that will pay it off. And so if you don't, and then the sequence itself is going to set things up and pay things off. So if you have it all disconnected like that, what you end up doing is you end up having these sort of episodic chunks that you then try and link together logically and causally, and you're fighting backwards. And so, which is what he, he says in his email, yeah. right? He feels like, it's just not how I feel. I'm writing it in one flow, and then it feels like I have to break it up. And it's like, yeah, you're right. That's what they're telling you to do. They're telling you to break up a single story. But that's 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 just going to disconnect each of the individual scenes and make it feel very piecemealy and yeah. pretzeled and not great at all. Um, and so that is a huge danger of thinking of it that way. It's It can be very very bad way of looking at it. The analogy is probably far too cute um, and by extension stupid. But <laughs> the, which is kind of my remit. Um, <laughs> but the, um, the, the painter who paints with the dots, I forget what he's called. What, impressionists? Um, so, so Monet? No, it's a painter who paints... Pointillism. Is that what it's called? Yeah, pointillism. So it, lots of individual dots as yeah. opposed to brush yeah. strokes or anything. Yeah. Right. So uh, thinking of a story like that, if you're looking at sequences and scenes and you're disconnecting, you're looking at the dots too closely, you need to remember that there's a whole picture. Yeah, that, uh, that, that is... That's Cute and stupid? Was that? I don't know if it's cute or stupid. <laughs> like, it's like I get what you mean. Like, yeah, there's if you look at it, if you get stuck on each of the individual dots, you forget that every dot, when you're supposed to step back, are supposed to just be a full picture. Yeah, yeah, that makes some sense. Okay, yeah. So that's that's the worry of it, that you disconnect everything. Yeah, and you get too focused on this bit, and you you get hung up. This is why uh, I think like writing dialogue really early is such a mistake. Because you get caught up in a scene or a sequence or a line that you can't bear to cut. But it's very, very easy to cut a sequence or a scene or even an entire act if it's just a single sentence. Sure. You mean quite early on in the writing yeah. process? Yeah, like the way yeah, I yeah, phrase yeah. Die Hard now, you know, Hans takes the plaza. Like, if you come up with a story and that's how you phrase your inciting incident, someone says that just doesn't work. It's really not hard to change it. Yeah. But if you've written out this beautiful scene and everything and it's all ready to go and then someone goes, yeah, it's kind of a problem that he takes the plaza the way he does. What if he's given the plaza and blah, blah, blah. So all of a sudden now you have to change everything and it's really hard to do and you don't want to do that. It's too much. Yeah. And people fall in love with their scenes and everything and then they try and force those scenes into stories that they don't belong in. You know? So, yeah, there's a problem when you think about it as mini-movies. It becomes okay. disconnected. So, so two, two big problems with this, then, are... The, the formula. The, the formula and the disconnect. Yeah. So, okay, then the good thing... There is, yes, there is actually a good thing, though, about looking at it. Looking at sequences mini-movies is a good thing for two reasons, really. One is that, first of all, it makes you aware of what a sequence is. You're aware of that size of turning point. But the other thing is it gives those sequences purpose. You remember that it's not just about getting from A to scene C and then go, oh, well, I need scene B to go from scene A to scene C. Scene B is its own thing, you know? Scene B is now, like, that's an important thing. So every scene stands up by itself, but as part of the whole. So... It is actually not that bad an idea to look at that. You know, the way we've done it here, which is, you know, the sequence is, you know, this sequence is uh, McLean gets the gun. 
right? That's not necessarily divorcing the sequence from any of the scenes surrounding it. But at the same time, it is doing that mini-movie aspect of focusing on what that sequence is about. All those scenes are about McLean getting the gun and getting the intelligence on the group. So it has uh, its own identity. It's not just an amorphous from one scene to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, just dragging in like that. It's got it's got a real purpose to it. So that's... um. Yeah, thinking, that's a good thing. Thinking of, of it from from the kind of overall story point of view. Yeah. Um, like if you were there, if you were just telling the story like you did at the beginning, mm. Hans takes the plaza. It's this big ups. Uh, it's big downswing for McLean. Big upswing for for Gruber. Yeah. And and that being so huge. Yeah. The natural thing, it feels like it wants to swing the other way. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. As an audience member, you think, okay, I, I kind of want it to push in the other direction. Yeah. So what way can you do that? Because well, it's getting so bad, like something good's got to happen. Something right? good's got to happen. So what good can happen? Yeah. Well, how about we give McLean now a machine gun and a bunch of intelligence so he can start fighting back? Yeah. Okay, now we're talking. So how would yeah. that come about? Yeah. Or you might think, okay, we need McLean to get a gun. How do we have him earn it? Right. Yeah. And then you go back the other go. way. But you get that sensation. Like I remember watching the fourth season of The Sopranos, the finale, and they're all happy and they've bought a new house, and you go, something bad's going to happen. Right. You can just tell, like, That's something such really bad. a good bad. example because I, I, yeah. that occurs to me now. So it's, yeah. since, something bad has to yeah. happen, right? Because you can just tell, like, everything's too good. Right. There's something bad going, and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting to hear. What is the bad thing? What's the thing that? What's going to ruin all this? And so similarly, if something's getting really bad, you go, "There's how's he going to get out of this?" You know, something good's got to happen. How's he going to get out of this? And so, um, and when you get somewhere where, when you get down endings, you know, that's how it works. Like in the gray, for example. Yeah. Uh, spoilers for the gray. Uh, the gray. <laughs> there's that bit where you think like it's getting harder. He's lost everyone, but. I think he's made it. Oh shit! <laughs> he's right in the middle of there. Then, well, he's dead then, right? But you think he's just about—he's just about out of the woods, quite literally, right? You think he's literally out of the woods? Oh no, he's not. no, he's dead now. That's that. That's done, right? So you have to, so the, the way it works is like if you want a downswing, you have to kind of earn the downswing, and if you want the upswing, you have to earn the upswing. You can't yeah. just go like things are bad. Ah. And that's it. And go. Things are great. Well, hey, and this, like there's a there's a dynamism to it, and the audience just sort of intuitively understands that there's a dynamic coming. That if it's getting really bad, then something good's probably going to happen. If it's getting really good, something bad's probably going to happen. They just inherently understand that. Yeah. That that there's this. Swing I've always going. I've always loved your point that the audience understands. They they, they yeah. can't necessarily articulate it, no. but they understand. Yeah, and they'll that, call you on that. Yeah, because that's why they go. Right. right, yeah. That's why we go to these things. Like, we go to these things for those experiences. So we don't even... We, it's so presupposed. Why would we... Why would we... Uh, we wouldn't need to articulate it as an audience. You just... You expect, like, oh, it's a comedy. I expect to laugh. Sure. That's yeah, yeah. why I'm going to this thing. Yeah. To laugh. If I don't laugh, you made a mistake. Right? That's how it is. And they might not be able to understand why they didn't laugh or whatever, but they'll, they'll know they didn't. Yeah. So that's that. And... Um, yeah, it's only it's only really pretentious art circles where this is even a discussion <laughs> because they're so wrapped up in the intellectual side of it they just kind of forget that there's actually an experience to be had. They just kind of go like, "Well, I want to see you break convention." Well, 
then breaking conventional becomes conventional. Like that's 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 how that works, right? <laughs> like that when people go, well, genre doesn't exist, or genre is just this. And it's like, yeah, be an art film, the non-generic, the non-genre film is a genre with specific conventions attached to it, namely being unconventional. I mean, like you're just—it's just ridiculous. You're just being provocative. You're not actually doing your, what you're supposed to be doing. So. Coming back to the um, the the purpose, the sequences. Yes. No, knowing this helps you understand that a sequence in your story has a purpose. Yes. Um, and being able to identify that a sequence allows you to identify therefore yes. its purpose. And its purpose so, inside the story proper. The, yeah, this is right? what I'm, this is yeah. what I'm getting to. So can we talk about uh, not a not of just examples? like because that's the problem. That's the problem with this whole thing. You've got that balance which is between giving the sequence a purpose and not forgetting that that purpose has to be part of the whole story as opposed to coming up with mini-movies yeah, to fit a certain quota. That won't help you and at all. And so you need to be able to go... But, but at the same time, if you don't give any purpose to these scenes, if you just have like a climax, then you're going to have real trouble just making choices to get to the climax. And it... To to just build on the Die Hard example before you, we bring in a couple of others, um, yeah. the purpose of certain things being in the sequence. Going back to that sequence, we um, discussed the second one in Die Hard. Yeah. Um, uh, McLean finding the empty, empty floor. Hans yeah. gets Takagi. McLean gets trapped. Gruber kills Takagi. Gruber has a plan. McLean pulls a fire alarm. McLean kills a terrorist. Theo cracks the code, and then uh, he gets the machine gun and the intelligence. Dotted throughout there yes. are so many setups for later on in the movie. Right. Things that need to be there and have to yeah. be there. Yeah. Um, but that are, are built into that sequence. And they pay off things. And they pay off, right? Yeah. So the um what would happen so talking about it in terms of a mini movie, yeah. if McLean got the intelligence yeah. and then never used it again in the movie, mm. that's bullshit, right? Yeah, you ask what was the point of that sequence. Right. But we know having seen the movie yeah that he later goes on to and similarly it. the scenes before this the sequence before this makes more sense because we've seen the payoffs to it because we got oh, intru- we got introduced to Takagi of course we did yeah so like okay what does it matter who this Takagi guy is why are we seeing scenes with this Takagi well because he's about, about to get his head blown off right, right that's why yeah because it's not just some random guy it's Takagi plus Takagi makes a choice he stands up for his people right Group is about to take someone else, of course, and he says it's me. I'm I'm Takagi. Yeah. So he seems somewhat heroic, and he's very brave, Takagi. He's just gonna have to kill me, right? He calls Gruber's bluff. Yeah. And it just goes wrong, and so as a result, it dramatizes Gruber and everything. So there's there's all these great setups and payoffs, and it's really great, and it doesn't. It wouldn't. It's not a mini movie in that sense. It's not. No, it's not no. separate. But at the same time, you look at it, it's like there's a purpose to this particular sequence. This particular sequence is how McLean gets into the fight, basically. But there's also there's no way of knowing when you're writing your sequence, when you're kind of yeah. sketching out. There's no way that that the writer would have known that all those setups would have had to be been in that little sequence there. No, and this it's possible. I mean, and then you get things like ad libs and stuff. Right. Um, so there's all kinds of things to do with. Like, there's the famous, there's the story about uh, Alan Rickman being given his costume for Gruber, and it's just a regular mercenary terrorist army type costume. 
you know, like Bane or something, you know, yeah. just combat trousers and boots. And he just goes, and look ridiculous. <laughs> you know, it's just like, and they go, well, what do you want to do? It's like, why don't you, why can't I wear a suit? Like a proper suit. And it's like, why? Well, because then I can have a scene where I convince McLean that I'm one of the hostages. And then that gets put in the screenplay. That happened? Or are you making it up? Apparently so. Really? Yeah. So Gruber looked... Uh, not Gruber. <laughs> Alan Rickman looked in the mirror at his Gruber and just intuitively understood that he has no dimensions. Yeah. So he gave him one. And they let him have it. And then they used that to turn scenes and so forth. And so even in this scene, where uh, this sequence where he goes, like, I read about it in Forbes... I could sit here talking about men's fashion with you all, all that stuff, right? He looked across the breadth of his empire and wept, you know, Alexander the Great. All this classical training and all that stuff might have come from Alan Rickman. Who knows? Sure. So th- these kind of what-if games, uh, you you know, you, you do the best you can, and then you hope <laughs> the next stage, someone makes it better. Well, the the point I was right? making about about those setups yeah. being put in there, it's like um, you said, like you can't you can't necessarily you, you can't sit down and plan like meticulously. I need this setup no, and this perfect. No, no, no. You have no idea because sometimes you're coming up with something like this works really well. Someone comes along, an actor looks at it and goes, "If I wear a suit, suddenly I can make this sure. scene a gem of action cinema." And you go, oh, I didn't even see that coming. And it's not like the scene didn't work at all. It's just, it's now one of the greatest scenes. Yeah. As opposed to pretty okay scenes. It's more just things like that. Yeah. The kind of intelligence. They might uh, the right, They might have been writing the story. Um, I, mean, yeah. I mean, this this was a novel first, wasn't it, Die Hard? It was a novel, yeah. yeah. But the, the the story might have been um, been sketched out and the, the writer looks at uh, what's going on and, and, and just thinks... I think my cop is just being too lucky. I need to. He needs to have some kind of intelligence. He needs to have some kind of yeah. upper hand on them. Otherwise, yep. this is just too fortunate. So he goes back and yeah. earlier on in the story finds. You know what? Actually, I can place it here. Yeah. And so it's it's done in that sort of way. Exactly. So it's 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 just one of those things where you just keep working at it, working at it, and the more you know about the craft, hopefully, the better you can make it. Uh, but there's things you won't, might not consider. So let's talk about um, other examples then, just to okay. So examples of this whole thing of the mini movie thing. So for example, uh, let's see. Khan, who's the Khan one? Khan. Yeah. Oh, Khan. Khan, because so, you've got the Khan counter example. Okay, so if you take a look at the Wrath of Khan and um, the new Star Trek film, or the first of the new Star Trek films, um, with with by J J Abrams. Um, if you take a look at those two uh, stories, they each have a very powerful scene in them where the villain gets the upper hand. And what's interesting is this. If you take from that Star Trek film the scene where Nero blows up Vulcan, okay, if you all remember that scene, where Nero blows up Vulcan and Spock loses his mother... And uh, they beam back on the Enterprise and they watch Vulcan implode in a black hole. It's a good sequence. It's well done. Okay? There's nothing really wrong with it. Here's the problem. If you take that sequence out, imagine they went, like, as a trailer for the film. You know, the IMAX prologue or whatever. They just played that sequence. What in that sequence isn't there? There is a setup or a payoff in a a previous scene or a successive scene that isn't there. You realise quickly... There's no difference. You put it in the film, it has the exact same emotional resonance, 
than if you take it by itself, because there are no setups and there are no payoffs to it. It's a mini-movie inside the film. There's some setups in terms of exposition, who Nero is. But in terms of his character, we don't know anything about him. Spock, there is a setup that Spock loves his mother, right? There is a setup to that outside of the sequence, but it's not paid off in the Vulcan sequence. Because in the Vulcan sequence, she just dies. If he had to choose between his parents which one to save, that would be a payoff, right? And then you go, oh, you have to see the scenes before it to really understand what this means. But those, there's no payoff to it. So this sequence, this whole sequence is just a mini-movie in the story. It's disconnected. It's nicely done, but as part of the whole film, it does, doesn't mean anything. The scenes after this and the scenes before it just don't mean anything. There's no meaning. Khan, on the other hand, you take the famous Khan scene, which is uh, Khan leaves Kirk buried at the center of a dead planet. Buried alive. Buried alive. Khan! I'm doing the faces for Luke. <laughs> it's tremendous. I know. So that's that fantastic sequence that everyone knows. If you take that out of the film, that sequence makes almost no sense. If only because... <laughs> Kirk is lying when he yells Khan. He, he, he's lying. He's okay. He knows that the, the ship is going to be repaired. He's pretending to Khan that he's trapped forever. So that whole sequence, the meaning of that sequence as well, that he meets his son and his son hates him, that Khan has come back to bury him alive. And all this, Khan's motivation... All of that is outside of that scene. So that sequence by itself doesn't make sense because it requires the scenes before it to make sense of it and the scenes after it pay it off. There's huge amounts of setups in that scene that require payoff later. So it's a mini movie in the sense that it is a clear sequence with a clear set piece and a clear bit of action and so forth to it. But it is part of the... So there's a clear purpose to it. But it's part of the whole story. You can't just take it out. It's interwoven into the whole framework of the story. So that's what you want. You want you want the sequences on the one hand to have very clear purpose. And they're very um, uh, specific and so on. But at the same time, they have to be part of the whole story. So I can understand where the advice comes from. Because sequences are often overlooked people don't think about it they think of the major turns and that's about it and then they have lots of small scenes big acts and that's it and you want sequences to sort of make a good flow of events in the story so i understand where it comes from but the problem is prescribing numbers to it of how many to have and when to have them and making them think of, the, of them as mini movies as self-contained is disastrous because the whole point is you don't want them self-contained you don't want them to to dictate the flow of the story Thinking you want them to be something that as as he pointed out in the question that naturally happens which is you have small scenes that build and build and build and build until they go into a sequence yeah. then the sequence build and build and build until they become acts and then the acts build and build and build until you get the climax so it's, there's this growing building of it calling them mini movies is is only really half the story yeah because yeah, like as you said, you do yeah. you 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 need to think of them in that sort of yeah. way, but they also need to be integrated, yeah, um, uh, within the rest of the story. Yeah, do you want to bring up um, just one more example of a, a sequence that could be plucked um, from a movie and not make any difference whatsoever? 
What was the one I... What? Which I'm one? leading you. Do you not remember? I don't think I do. Civil War airport sequence. Oh, yeah! Perfect. <laughs> I forgot all about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Civil War airport sequence is in, Ma- in Captain America Civil War, the airport fight <laughs> is just a perfect example of the mini-movie. Yeah. In fact, lots of action films today are like this now because the, they they uh, pay and get the set pieces done before they've got a screenplay. And so they've already said, we've got to have a fight in the airport because we've, we've, back, we've paid for the location and we've paid for this, we've paid right. for that. It has to happen. That sequence has to happen. So that's the whole story is kind of built around it. And the Captain America Civil War one is just one of those perfect examples where... It is so divorced from the rest of the story. It is so irrelevant that the best thing in it are two secondary characters, Ant-Man and Spider-Man. Like, there's a, they can steal the scene and therefore the entire film because, frankly, what's going on between Captain America and Iron Man is irrelevant. There's nothing changing. You don't need any setups for it. This, the, Captain, the Civil War airport sequence requires one piece of exposition which is how come they all know each other like that's it you, the scene where ant-man gets put brought up in the van you know that yeah. kind of, that's it that's all it needs once you explain how they're in the same place at the same time that sequence could have come straight in the Ber- you know the berlin sequence um, where Black Panther yes. chases them in the yes. tunnels and everything, and then they get captured. Yeah. Okay, here's what happens. They don't get captured. Captain America runs away with Bucky. Cut to airport sequence. Right, with you. Right? It works perfectly, right? You do, there's no, you're not missing anything. There's yeah. no story being missed. Airport sequence. Well, hey, then at the end of the airport sequence, what happens? Captain America gets captured by, uh, by Iron Man, and they're put in prison. And then, uh, then they escape. They escape that prison... And then they cut to Siberia. You can literally take the airport sequence and put it in a different point in the film. And it works fine. because Which is a problem. It's an enormous problem. <laughs> the airport sequence is terrific fun. It's great. It is, however, a total mini-movie. And okay. the surrounding scenes just don't matter. Listen, so, so but point made. I don't, let's not have another rant on the Civil War. Especially since I don't hate it. <laughs> it's just like... I just, I just feel and yet, like... And you can't stop talking about I it. Just, I just feel like... You know, I no, okay. veto, stop. Okay, it's, it's my fault. I brought it up. Okay. Um, okay, so then um, let's let's start to wrap this up. Intuitive versus analytical. <laughs> Just the way you say the shorthand that we wrote write down. Like we sketch out sometimes a podcast, and we write down some shorthand, and then Luke will just read the shorthand out, and I'm like, I've forgotten. <laughs> because I'm in the middle of like I'm in the middle of um, of civil war <laughs> Do oh, God. but no I remember now you remember? I remember so, <laughs> so uh, yesterday I was doing a little polish on the action book and I I'm, I realised the, the way the Dark Knight works is this Harvey Dent Harvey Dent is the MacGuffin. I don't know why I went Joker. He's the, he's the MacGuffin of the story. Who, so he starts off part of the ensemble hero, is the MacGuffin, and then becomes the villain for the climax, when he becomes Two-Face. There's no way <laughs> Nolan, Goya, any of the people involved, went, yeah, let, how cool an idea would that be if the MacGuffin was a person and they went from hero to villain? Like, no one... No one's thinking like that. No yeah. one does that. 
but that's what happens. Okay. So the the whole this whole you know do I just uh, analyze it and try and come up with this or do I do that like you can get your ideas and your inspiration basically from two things. Either one is life, you know, you get ideas from life, or you get ideas from the form. The form itself inspires you. Wouldn't it be great to do a story where the MacGuffin is a person and they go from hero to villain? How would that work and all that stuff, right? Um, that could be an interesting way of doing it. But it's not the way... It, you don't have to do it that way. You don't have to think about it that way. You don't even have to ever have that question pop up. But at some point, if something isn't working... And you know what the MacGuffin is, and you know what the hero is, and you know what the villain is. And you look at the story, and you go, something's not working. What's not working? And you go, ah, that's the problem. You can solve it. If you don't know about it, you can't solve these problems. A bit of advice I was actually given um, at, at university was yeah. to read your story out loud. Yeah. So once you've sketched it out, once you've got a, a, you know, a two-page treatment... Read yeah. it out loud because you force yourself to listen. Yep, and you will know when it gets boring. You see, the whole thing about this mini movie thing is it's trying to make you shift your perception, which is very good because shifting your perception yeah. helps you uncover problems. Like I always feel like if you're writing a synopsis, the first thing you should do is whenever you put a character or a proper noun into the synopsis, capitalize it. Just put it in capitals, and then very quickly you'll start to realize. All my exposition is front loaded. All the characters meet in the first scene. That's like you're like you're just throwing all this information at people, and then you start going, "Hold on, how important is this character really? Really, like how important is this character? Do I really, really need this character in the story?" And you go, "I'm going to keep the character, but I'm going to remind myself that this is not the main character, and it doesn't matter if this character doesn't get." every scene that I thought they should get. It doesn't matter, actually, if this character has that many dimensions because they're not that relevant. They're so irrelevant to the story full, I'm not even going to put their names in capitals in the synopsis. I'm not even going to put their name in the cap in the synopsis because I don't need to. There you go. Breaking convention, Basim, for convention's not, sake. That's not what I... That's not, <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't make any sense at all what you just said. How's that breaking convention? I don't know. You lost me halfway through. Oh, for great... <laughs> My, my point being that shifting your perception, which is what you were saying, yeah, is very what much... what I was alluding to. Yeah, yeah. it's very, it's very good. Like, there are all these little tra- techniques, like reading it out loud, thinking about them in terms of mini-movies, things like that. These are ways to try and get your mind to not look at it the same way. Uh, so to that st- you can hope... Stop- yeah, so you can hopefully see the problems. In, in, in illustration, you know what you do? You hold a mirror up to your work you've told me that before. yeah you just see the reverse of it and you go oh that arm's out of place that that's lopsided that's that and just immediately you just it's like complete fresh eyes and then you go back and you start drawing again right and it, with um with computers now because you can do it on your cintiq or your tablet you can just literally go flip canvas horizontal so it's like you flip the whole canvas over on the computer and then start drawing it that way and so like you've you've you know whereas before yeah. the mirror you had to keep looking but that's that's just how people every art like you you give yourself time but you try and come up with ways to look at it a bit differently so sometimes looking at it in terms of sequence structure and all this stuff like turning points just like labeling now positive negative positive negative like that is a great way to kind of look at the work through a mirror you yeah. can go oh hold on this has gone positive 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 po- like all these positive turns is that a problem sometimes it's not a problem sometimes it's fine 
And that's that's the danger formula. Because the danger formula is not only do you write to it, but if you start rewriting, you rewrite and force yourself into it. And you start fixing problems that aren't problems and you create new problems. So that's why you want to know all this stuff. You want to have a big sort of uh, encyclopedia in your head of examples and things so you know what can and can't work, why something does work, why something doesn't work. And then Having the skills to be able to both analyse your work and intuit what's wrong with it. Yeah. Like that's an incredible skill set. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean it's it's virtually impossible when you word it like that, but Yeah. But these tools help. Yeah. This helps with the analytical side. You've still yeah. got to force yourself to go back and be an audience member. Yeah. We mention comedy a lot, but when you're writing comedy, if it makes you laugh, you know it works. Yeah. So why the hell <laughs> Do we get so sloppy sometimes with action or any of these other genres? Well, you get sloppy with comedy, right? Because sometimes you forget that the three in the morning laughing at work because you're <laughs> tired and living on coffee, right, isn't actually funny to anyone outside the room. I'm with you. You've made an in-joke, right? Yeah. And it's just not funny outside of anyone in the room. No one else is going to find that funny, but you guys are like, ha, 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 you're crying with laughter and you're right in this room going like, oh man, we're so funny. Like, there's so many in-jokes that we've come up with when we're sitting down writing. It's like, this will never translate. You have to stop and give people the setup for why it was funny for us in the first place, but that's not in the, in the story, you know? So... Yeah, it's 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 not. <laughs> yeah, so even comedy, you get that problem. Sure, okay. but I get I get your point. Like, you know, <laughs> if you're laughing in comedy, it should work. There are times. One of my favorite times when you write comedy is when you go, you pitch someone a joke and they don't laugh, and you go, "Let me explain to you why it's funny," and then they just go, like, "I didn't laugh. We're done." Right? Like, like that's my favorite. So I'm sure this is funny somehow because it makes me laugh, so it must make them laugh. So it's just not funny. That's it. I remember doing that with uh, with Will when we were writing uh, our sitcom. It's just this bit where, like, every now and again, we got after a while, the two of us just had it down, which was one of us would say a joke and we go, I'm "Not laughing, not funny." Next, because as soon as someone try, like I would do it, and sometimes he would do it, we would try and argue that it's actually really funny, and I'm not laughing. Next, like that was our thing. It, we both had to laugh at it, or it didn't get in the thing. When when Jason and I write, it's even more crushing because we do we do it by phone. Yes. And so we're using Google Docs, so we're both writing on the same yeah. document, but we're doing we're pitching by phone. And so you say something, which is hilarious, and the line is dead. <laughs> That's crushing. <laughs> but there's always that gap, and you just say it, say it again. Maybe if I say it again, it'll be funny. Um, <laughs> Okay, put it. Do it with the voice. Do it with the voice. <laughs> let's let's really wrap this up. Um, I don't think I I don't want to do a normal um summary because uh, I don't think we need to go. Through Who's every... breaking convention now? Oh, um, Mike that's almost walking. Oh, oh. Um, I don't want to go through the first twenty minutes again. <laughs> because... <laughs> We're doing so well. Let me finish. I don't care. <laughs> I don't want to go through the first 20 minutes again because um, uh, because it would just involve going through all the sequences, etc. <laughs> and we don't need to. That's all there. That will all be there on the website. Um, so I think the best way to sum this up is to just go back to the the, the question, what, what's the most important thing we can take away for our own writing from this? Um, uh, d- um, uh, d- the most important thing... <laughs> Um, don't listen to formulas but do change your 
perception of your own work. That was terrible. A less wanky way of saying that? I don't know how else to say it. I don't know. I, my mind's kind of shutting down now. <laughs> I've got diehard swimming in my head. Um, so just like, look, <clears throat> if something, the, the, the worry is you don't want to manufacture something that's artificial and you don't want to um, uh, just copy formula and things like that. And you want to be able to say something that's unique. And the fact is that the form is there to help you say what it is you want to say. And so the form should not be obstructing your ability to say these things. Your fo- the form should be helping you. And so if you are having problems with the form and you're going, thinking about sequences messes me up, thinking about this messes me up, that suggests that you don't understand the form well enough uh, because it's it's there to help, right? The form helps because you're writing a story, so you want to know the form of story so you can write the story better. It should never be something that gets in the way. I have never, there's no amount, I, I, I read all those books on how to write and all these things, and I would apply them. And uh, knowing how story works has never made it harder. Uh, it's made it easier. What makes it harder is the more you know, the more you want to be able to tell, and the higher your standards get, and that gets harder. But it doesn't. It the actual writing of it just doesn't get harder. It just gets. It just. It helps you do it because you look at something and you go, something's not working. What's not working? Oh, I know the form. I know what sequences are. I know what MacGuffins are. I know what the genre conventions are. And so you have this checklist in your head and you have all these examples in your head of people using that checklist in all these inventive ways. And you look at your work and you go, here's the problem, that. And so it's always, it's, it's just helps. So if, you, if you're having trouble adapting a form or a formula to your story or whatever it is, that would suggest to me that the problem is the model you're adapting to your work. The formula you're applying is, is what's the problem as opposed to your writing necessarily. You crashed so hard from hugely unprofessional to wonderfully eloquent. Just on a... It was on a dime. That was unbelievable. Where have you been? Where have you been? I don't know. Oh, my word. There. We're done. Scene. Scene. Push the button. Push it. Okay, I'll push it. Goodbye, everyone.